This is Africa Digest. Good evening and welcome to Africa Digest. You're listening to Channel Africa, giving you news from an African perspective. We're broadcasting from Johannesburg on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa and online on www.channelafrica.co.za. I'm Amanda Machaka, driving the show with Onel Nzinzi, with Sani Matebula and Neto Chemane. Top stories on Africa Digest this hour. Togo's opposition coalition threatens to boycott the December 20 parliamentary elections. South Africa is losing millions of dollars to illegal cigarettes and 75% of all people living with HIV know their status, according to a new report by UNAIDS. In economics, Public Enterprises Minister Praveen Godan confident that South African Airways leadership will turn the airline around. And in sport, England have claimed second position in the ICC men's test team rankings after completing a 3-0 sweep over Sri Lanka in Colombo. But first, here's the news with Onele. Thank you, Amanda. Hundreds of Tunisian protesters marched through the capital, Tunis, in opposition to a planned visit on Tuesday by Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, urging justice over the murder of journalist Shamal Khashoggi. This was the second protest against the defunct Saudi ruler who was expected to fly into Tunis from Egypt on Tuesday for talks with the president as part of a regional tour. Saudi Arabia has faced intense global criticism over the killing of insider-turned-critic Khashoggi in an Istanbul consulate on October 2nd. The African Union uh, Peace and Security Council is urging the European Union to lift sanctions on Congolese President Joseph Kabila's chosen successor less than a month before a historic election. Ruling party candidate Emmanuel Ramazani Shadri was sanctioned by the EU last year for obstruction obstructing rather the electoral process and related human rights violations the central african nation faces what could be its first peaceful democratic transfer of power on december 23 the opposition fears that kabila who has ruled since 2001 will assert power behind the scenes if shadowy wins Zimbabwean Opposition Movement for Democratic Change has sent out strong warning to party officials accused of plotting to ask Nelson Chamisa from the party's leadership ahead of the National Elective Conference next year. According to Daily News, Party General Secretary Douglas Mwanzoro and Deputy President Elias Muzuri were accused of planning to grab power from Chamisa and causing divisions within the party. The two senior officials attested to have later been saved from being expelled by the party leader Chamisa himself. The Russian National Security Service, the FSB, has released what it says are confessions by Ukrainian sailors who were detained during the seizure of three Ukrainian naval vessels and their crew near Crimea. President Vladimir Putin expressed his concern over Ukraine's decision to impose martial law in response to the seizure. The BBC's Steve Rosenberg. 
In one video clip broadcast by Russian TV, a man introduced as a Ukrainian naval captain says to camera he realized that the Ukrainian vessels in the Kurt Strait had been acting provocatively. In a second recording, a Ukrainian military intelligence officer is shown admitting that the Ukrainian vessels had entered Russian territorial waters. The circumstances in which these alleged video confessions were obtained are unclear. Ukraine now says 24 of its servicemen are in Russian detention. And lastly, former Liberian president Ellen johnson Sirleaf has joined African women in the call for them to actively participate at decision-making wherever they may be required to serve. Sirleaf was speaking in Lagos, Nigeria at a conference on women development and empowerment for general development. She said education and a hunger for the best are the tools relevant for women to be able to improve on the level attained so far, especially as a stereotype which tended to inhibit women are all giving way for good. What I sought to do was to be the best. You know, I sought for excellence, in other words. And so I think that that uh, education gives you that desire for excellence, and you use that desire, and you work well for excellence, and you find that it moves you forward toward the achievement of your goals. Channel African News, I'm Onilinsinzi. Thank you, Onele. The main opposition coalition in Togo says it will boycott December 20 parliamentary elections and has called for further protests over what it alleges will be a fraudulent poll. Togo's constitutional court has validated ballots for 12 parties, but not any for the 14-party opposition coalition that has staged protests in the former French colony over the past year. Ballots for 17 independent candidates have also been approved. Togo's political crisis has been going on since September 2017, when protesters took to the streets in the capital Lomé to demand President Fort Nyasimba's resignation. Nasimba has been in power since 2005, following the death of his father, who ruled the country for 38 years. For more on the opposition's boycott of the upcoming election, Channel Africa spoke to Lamin Sadikan, coordinator of the Pan-African Movement, Africans Rising for Justice, Peace and Dignity. I think um, the opposition is on the track, on the right track, uh, based on the analysis and as well, you know, the movement that we support there. The Togo debut uh, about a month ago, stage, um, uh, street, took the streets of, of uh, Lome, you know, protesting, demanding for the free of uh, all the political prisoners or the release of all the political prisoners. So it's like the government, the government of uh, Nyasimbe is in control of the Ultra institutes is also in control of the police and the army. So the, the likelihood of the fraudulent, fraudulent elections is very much high. So the oppositions are, uh, you know, do not trust the electoral system. They need a robust uh, reform in the whole uh, electoral uh, process. So uh, they, that's why they are demanding for uh, a boycott. Now, why do you think uh, the Togolese government is uh, reluctant to introduce the reforms? Because uh, those reforms are part of uh, the ECOWAS roadmap, uh, which include the release of political prisoners, as you have mentioned, constitutional and institutional reforms, as well as uh, the inclusion of uh, the opposition in uh, the organization of uh, the 2020 elections. Why is there uh, some kind of reluctance 
on the part of the Togolese authorities with regards to these proposed reforms? It is clearly manifested in the in the protests and then in the struggles and the demand for change that people want to see an end of an end to the 22-year regime of the Nyasimbe family. You all know that the Nyasimbe family have been ruling Togo for the past 52 years. So the demand is very high that people want change. People want um, people are fed up with the, the the family and then the, the rule of the family. So what is happening? I uh, think the government is very much alert that uh, when they allow the reforms. Um, obviously, they will lose the power because people are really very hungry for 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 the needed change. So, if the reforms are put in the place the way it has been recommended, the government will obviously lose in in the polls. Now, is it your view then that uh, conducting uh, these elections without the necessary reforms will not solve the Togolese question? That it will only intensify tensions and violence in the country? Yes, I have. That strong belief because I, I am very much connected to the Togolese uh, situation. I remember I was arrested there last year. So what is clear is that um, uh, you know the government is 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 in, in in control of all the different systems. So they don't want to you know go into any reform to allow the the majority of the people to have their voice in this process of uh, political reform. So ev- eventually. Um, when when there is election, uh, obviously people will not accept the results. People will be on the streets. And there will be a lot of people killed. There will be a lot of arrests because you know people really are fed of the system and they want change. What do you think the ECOWAS group should do at this point uh, over and above the roadmap that has been uh, in place? The ECOWAS need to respect the, the demands and the wills of the people. They need to put pressure on, on Togolese government to ensure that there are proper reforms in place before the elections are conducted. They should stop all the election processes going on and then ensure that reforms are put in place and all the political prisoners uh, need to be released. ECOWAS need to uh, save the, save, safeguard the rights and the livelihood of the people that they represent, that they said they are put uh, together for. Uh, they said ECOWAS of the people. We want to see ECOWAS of the people representing the interests of the people of Togo. So I want to see ECOWAS demanding for the immediate release of the political prisoners and all the activists that are in jail right now. And I also want to see ECOWAS demanding for a hold of an election process until all reforms are in place. That's Lamin Said Khan, coordinator of the Pan-African Movement, Africans Rising for Justice, Peace and Dignity, on the line from Dakar in Senegal, talking to Komero Mundarere. The former Liberian President Ellen Johnson Sirleaf has joined African women to strive for excellence in the call to be active participants at decision-making wherever they may be required to serve. She spoke in Lagos, Nigeria at a conference on women development and empowerment. She said education and a hunger for the best are the tools relevant for women to be able to improve on the level attained so far, especially as the stereotypes which tended to inhibit women are all giving way for good. Collins at Hembe reports. Making genuine impact for the general development of the women folk has never been difficult for the convener of the Women Development Conference and founder of Women in Successful Career, Whisker, Amina Oyagbola, and this was how she opened the discussions at the beginning of the events. The goal must be to continue to press for progress, and we must adopt as many approaches as there are cultures as many parts as there are communities, and as many strategies as there are women. Let us boldly tell the world that women are ready to take their rightful place in society. Women's rights are quite simply, and has been said, human rights, no more, no less. 
But what was the central factor that fired Oyagbola, a lawyer, a former top executive at MTN Nigeria and a very active participant in corporate Nigeria, whose impact spans some 30 years in practical participation? Revealed in her earlier dialogue is the desire to have more women participate in decision-making process, such that the eventual outcome will be of wider benefits and outreach emanating from collective sphere. As she says, as things are now, women do not have strong enough influence that can change things. The point is nobody wants to be at the bottom of the ladder. Indeed, there's so many women involved. As a matter of fact, women are holding up this economy, in my opinion, because the women are the ones feeding us, they're the ones in the farms, they're the ones in the rural communities. But the question is how many women are really at the top? The reason why it's important is that those at the bottom of the food chain don't have influence to make change happen and to transform. Because all the change initiatives that you can think of in the world and the huge transformations that have happened have been led by leaders. People who lead are on top. The people who lead are in front. And the people who can influence and change policy, change regulation, change laws that affect you know, an interest group, not just women, any interest group. So the issues that we're talking about are real. Apparently, I mean, now Yagbola is not alone in her thoughts and belief in the importance of women participation in decision-making process. The former Liberian president, Ellen Johnson Sirleaf, says the desire not to be in the background or shadow of decision-makers requires education and striving for the best. She shared her experience in the match to the top. What I sought to do was to be the best. You know, I sought for excellence, in other words. And so I think that, that uh, the education gives you that desire for excellence and you use that desire and you work well for excellence and you find that it moves you forward toward the achievement of your goals. How difficult was it to make impact when it comes to participation in decision process and ensuring there are adequate number of women to contribute relevant ideas that could turn the table for the better? Oyagbola says without adequate representation a lone voice can go nowhere. A lot of the time through the course of my over 30 year career, I'd be the only single woman in the room. So what is the strength of my voice? No matter how strong a character I may be, no matter how intellectually capable I am, and no matter the, the performance track record I may have demonstrated over time. If you're sitting in a room with 12 or 15 people and they have a particular perspective and they want to go down a particular path, and you, you, you express your voice. I mean, the majority takes the day, and, and so it should. So I think it, it's actually critical that we have more women participation, ensuring that there's more parity and a richer perspective so that the quality of decisions that we make you know, as a people in those corporate institutions and in Nigeria generally are improved. Our focus is on leadership and capacity building through mentorship because we want to bridge that gap. With her level of attainment, Africa's first female president says women have and will continue to play a major role in the decision-making process while opportunities for self-improvement continues to be attractive so that the level reached now will be improved on. Women have to participate. You have to be a part of what, how society is moving and it's happening. It's happening around the world. I mean, the stereotypes of wife, mother, teacher, nurse, that stereotype is broken today. At the end of it all, about 20 women who have successfully completed entrepreneurial training 
and mentorships were awarded certificates of attestation while Ellen Johnson Selib received an award for her performance in women development and growth. From Lagos, Nigeria, I am Collins Nosa Atohimbe for Channel Africa News. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. The trade in illegal cigarettes has increased dramatically despite promises of a crackdown from the South African Revenue Service. This is according to the latest tobacco market study from Research House Ipsos. The new report shows that illegal cigarettes have now captured over 42% of the South African informal trade and are available in three out of every four shops in the country. The research was commissioned by the Tobacco Institute of Southern Africa, TISA. More on the findings from TISA chairman Francois van der Merve. The main findings are all unfortunately very bad news. This is the second time we did the study this year. The first time the results were showing that um, 33% of the informal market is uh, illegal cigarettes. It's uh, costing uh, the government $7 billion in lost taxes. Uh, and then uh, SARS and everybody made uh, promises that they're going to act and they're going to act against the perpetrators and, and so on. Uh, we did the second uh, study now this year, and unfortunately, the illicit trade has shot up by more than 23%. In the informal sector now, 42% of the market is illegal, and in two provinces, uh, Western Cape and Northwest, more than 50% is now illegal. In other words, it has overtaken uh, legal sales. So instead of losing $7 billion, uh, SARS is now losing another billion, and they're losing now at least $8 billion. Uh, and the shocking thing is that South Africa is now the first country in the world where an illegal brand is the biggest brand in the country. Uh, and the bad news about that is uh, that it sells for an average of 10 rand, where the minimum tax owed to government on a packet of cigarettes is 17 rand 85. So legal brands cannot compete uh, when illegal brands are on the market for 10 rand, and that brand, RG, made by Gold Leaf Tobacco Company, is now the biggest single brand in the country. If you could just take us through, you know, the process of how this survey was actually conducted. Well, that question you actually need to ask to the research house. Because we wanted it to be independent uh, and with a specialist, we commissioned the research. So we didn't do the research. So the the contract was awarded to Ipsos, which is a well-renowned research house. But what they did is they mapped the whole country. They did a retail census. Uh, to map the country, and they mapped uh, retailers over the whole country, uh, and they did 4,000 store visits, um, you know, during the course of two months, where they did a retail audit. Now, people in the field of research will be will be acquainted with what retail audit means, and from that on, they take the, the, the information back to their offices, they process it, uh, they do extrapolations, and they do modeling, and they come out and they tell me what the brands are. I only gave them instruction and said, I want to see how big is the illegal market. Tell me how many cigarettes sell below the tax rate of 1785, which are the brands and which are the manufacturers. And this is what they come up with. In the informal sector now, 42% of all cigarettes are illegal. RG is now the biggest brand in the market, selling at an average of 10 rand a packet 
versus the, the minimum tax owed to SARS on a packet of cigarettes of 17 rand 85. What message do these findings actually say to the government? What should the government be doing in this instance? Well, government should firstly be shocked because in a year where it's estimated that the shortfall is going to be 50 billion, year is 5 billion rand, uh, which is easy pickings if they just do one or two things. So this is a shocking information for government. And I must say that SARS and the commissioner has made uh, good commitments uh, and sent out a message that they're going to go after the illicit operators. But unfortunately, nothing has happened. And the bucket is leaking. As I said already, uh, in three months' time, SARS has lost another billion. So from $7 billion, it's now gone to $8 billion. And the solution is not simple. We understand SARS is struggling. We understand that Tomoyane destroyed SARS. We understand they have capacity problems. But SARS can go out, uh, they can contract external forensic auditors, they can send them into all tobacco factories in this country, they can do the audits, and the return on investment will be massive because the declarations are not done. Uh, There's dishonesty in declarations by manufacturers, and that is how they defraud SARS. The second thing SARS can do in cooperation with the police is clean the market. There's a high court judgment that says that cigarettes selling below the tax rates must be deemed to be illegal. So there's a precedent. SARS and SAPs can simply go to big wholesalers and big retailers stocking illegal products, selling below 1785, and simply seize it, take it off the market, and that'll send a strong message. So those two things, auditing of factories and cleaning of the market, will bring to SARS an additional potentially uh, $8 billion or even more. That was the chairman of the Tobacco Institute of Southern Africa, Francois van der Merve. He was speaking to Ntlantla Mahlangu. Kenya is hosting an international conference on blue economy. The conference has attracted more than 18,000 participants from all parts of the world. Blue economy is an economic term that relates to the exploitation and preservation of the environment in the sea and oceans. As James Manula reports, illegal fishing in seas, oceans and lakes featured prominently during the three-day conference that ends tomorrow. The conference was officially opened by Kenyan President Uhuru Kenyatta, who brought to light the fact that blue economy binds all countries in the world to a common destiny. Oceans, Kenyatta said, are the heart of our planet. They contain 97% of the water on the earth and supplies nearly half of the oxygen we breathe. The oceans, he said, absorb over a quarter of the carbon dioxide we produce and regulates the weather temperature. In addition to that, Kenyatta said oceans and seas as well as lakes support livelihood, food security and nutrition employment and 90% of the maritime trade and transportation. It may be important to point out that illegal fishing in the oceans, seas and lakes featured prominently during the Nairobi conference. Kenyatta briefly explains what his government intends to do to stop illegal fishing. We shall aggressively combat illegal and unregulated as well as unreported fishing and we have taken measures to enhance security and safety of our collective waters. That was Kenyan President Uhuru Kenyatta, Namibian Prime Minister Kugongelwa Amadila, tersely spoke about her country's commitment to implementing the blue economy policy. In particular, Namibia is committed to develop and implement an integrated blue economy policy and marine special plan. 
enhance sustainable fisheries management, eradicate illegal, unreported, and unregulated fishing. Ugandan President Yoweri Museveni said his government has launched what he described as war against bad fishing. We have started a war against bad fishing. We are still using crude methods, but want to get smarter by installing surface rudders on the lake shore where you can sit in one place and you watch what is happening on the lake. We also want to ensure that all the boats which are operating on the lake get electronic registration so that we know which boat is where and why. We must also control the flooding of human beings in these lakes because fishing must have a limit. Can we have one million people all fishing? What is the optimal number of the fishermen per square kilometer? That was Ugandan President Yoweri Museveni. As has been said at the outset, the International Blue Economy Conference is taking place in the Kenyan capital Nairobi. Now, let us hear short comments from ordinary Kenyans on the importance of the conference. It increases the profile of Kenya. When these investments come into the country, you as a, as a Kenyan benefit eventually in the long term. This uh, conference is actually to enlighten people that there is a lot of businesses that is within the blue economy, especially if it is in the fishing sector, if it is in the tourism sector, especially for the people in the coastline for the Indian Ocean, and the amount of pollution that is going on in our waters. We are looking at government coming up with incentives and disincentives to ensure that everyone is playing ball in terms of sustainable use of our oceans and their resources. Voices of some ordinary Kenyans on the International Blue Economy Conference ending tomorrow, Wednesday, in the Kenyan capital, Nairobi. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula. Remembering Mama Albertina Sisulu. We will say whatever we are expected to say by the people. And we are aligning ourselves with the struggle for the people. We are aligning ourselves with the struggle for the liberation of the oppressed people of this country. Hashtag Mama Sisulu Centenary. Channel Africa. 75% of all people living with HIV know their status. This, according to a new report by the United Nations Joint Program on HIV and AIDS, UNAIDS. The report also calls for increased efforts to reach 9.4 million people living with HIV but not aware that they have the virus. UNAIDS Director of Strategic Information and Evaluation, Peter Geis, explains. So as we look at the progress in the HIV testing, we actually see that there is quite a bit of progress, as you pointed out to us today, about 75% of all people living with HIV 
know indeed that they are living with HIV and therefore have the possibility to go on treatment. And progress, it varies a little bit across uh, different regions in the world, but uh, in, uh, in the East and Southern Africa region that includes South Africa, it's actually quite high and I think it's actually uh, more than 75% awareness of their status. The report does, however, acknowledge that there are still barriers to one knowing their status. Right, so some of the barriers that... Uh, continue to exist have to do with uh, accessibility of those services and then also to some extent like structural impediments for people to uh, to access that. Now Peter, the report also reveals that 9.4 million people still do not know their status and I was just wondering how exactly is it possible to determine such information? So it comes basically from, uh, let me say, two sources. So one is that uh, many countries actually have uh, like a case reporting system where each time that a person is diagnosed that gets captured in a database system and then all of that is fed up to uh, provincial capitals or the country's capital and so that is one source to know how many people actually know their status but then one other source that uh, informs on the like percent of people living with HIV that know their status is are the recent like national surveys because in recent times those surveys they ask like more questions about HIV specifically and whether people know their status so from those surveys we can have like a direct estimate of uh, the proportion of people who believe themselves to be living with HIV. That's Peter Geis, Director of Strategic Information and Evaluation at the United Nations Joint Programme on HIV and AIDS, on the line from Geneva in Switzerland, talking to Jane Robotad. Remembering Mama Albertina Sisulu. We will say whatever we are expected to say by the people, and we are aligning ourselves with the struggle for the people. We are aligning ourselves with the struggle for the liberation of the oppressed people of this country. Hashtag Mama Sisulu Centenary. Channel Africa. It's 17.30 Central African time. Honored and Sinsa standing by with our news headlines. The African Union Peace and Security Council is urging the European Union to lift sanctions on Congolese President Joseph Kabila's chosen successor less than a month before a historic election. Uganda faces pressure to probe 2016 massacre by military. Hundreds of Tunisians continue to protest against a visit by the Saudi Arabian Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. Channel Africa News, I am Onelinsinsi. Globally, only a third of the funding gap for refugee education has been filled. This according to the latest 2019 Global Education Monitoring Report, 
by the United Nations Educational, Scientific and Cultural Organization, UNESCO. Sub-Saharan Africa houses almost a third of all refugees in the world, along with millions of internally displaced people, both of which the report shows are putting huge strains on already struggling education systems. Here's UNESCO's Director of Global Education Monitoring Report, Manos Antoninis. One of its key messages is that migrants, and especially refugees, should be included in national education systems. But that, of course, is not very easy if you think about it, because refugees uh, tend to be overwhelmingly very young and to arrive in parts of countries that are already very poorly served by national education services. We find that eight out of the top ten uh, refugee hosting countries do include refugees in their national education systems, and that includes countries like the ones that you mentioned, which actually have very, very few resources, and also they have particular problems because the refugees arrive in areas where really already were struggling in terms of education. Uganda uh, has an influx primarily of uh, refugees from South Sudan, and they arrive in the Western Nile region, which is one of the really uh, most struggling ones. But what the government did was to, uh, to think of the following. First of all, the immediate response is to use humanitarian aid. That's the type of aid that is used for uh, the first few weeks. And that's, the problem with that is that you have very little emphasis on education because people tend to think of food and shelter and all these immediate needs. So they took the humanitarian aid donors and they join them with the development aid donors, those that actually, uh, when there's a crisis, tend to walk away because they are very scared, there's no system, there's no mechanism. And they put them together, and they developed a national education plan for these districts that were hosting refugees. And they developed a new plan that takes care not only of the refugees, but also of the communities that are hosting them. You know, there's talk to say that humanitarian aid cannot be uh, the only uh, way of filling the gap of funding in terms of refugee education. What alternatives are there? Because we know that at the moment, globally, only a third of the funding gap for education has been filled. In which ways uh, can, uh, again, this gap be filled? About uh, one-third of the gap is uh, financed to aid, but that is half of it is humanitarian aid and half of it is development aid. Development aid is a much larger part of uh, aid to education. The big uh, challenge uh, is how to attract more of that development aid to fund refugee education. And this is where initiatives like those in Uganda and Chad help because they, they help development donors look at the challenges of refugee education in a, in a different light and commit resources to it. We talk about uh, the many challenges that the teachers or even the refugees themselves would face. Uh, one of the other challenges, though, that the teachers face is that in, in, in often cases they lack training. Yes, um, the, the big challenge with refugee teachers is that, first of all, they come from a different country, so it takes time for their skills to be uh, and qualifications to be converted to those of the, the host country. That's one challenge. A second challenge is that they end up in those parts of, of countries where there's very poor service provision, there are poor t- uh, mechanisms to manage the teachers, so they may uh, end up uh, requesting and requiring additional funding for their salaries and their stipends and their incentives 
and that is sometimes a process that is quite difficult to manage uh, and it requires better coordination. But the third and most important problem is that they also need different skills because the refugee children have their own special needs. They have come from uh, conflict, they have seen uh, the horrors of war, uh, they are really affected and teachers sometimes may not be sensitive enough to uh, what each child brings with them. That's UNESCO's Director of Global Education Monitoring Report, Manos Antoninis, talking to Khumuzomo Polani. The following story contains a graphic description which may upset sensitive listeners, including children. An investigation by the SABC Current Affairs Program Cutting Edge has uncovered widespread sexual abuse of children with disabilities in special schools in the Eastern Cape in KwaZulu-Natal. Parents that Cutting Edge spoke to say their children are emotionally destroyed and their development hampered. Sexual abuse cases involving children with disabilities are often difficult to investigate as the victims are unable to tell police their story. Disability rights organizations want the government to do more to root out this problem. Zimkita Mangunana filed this report. The Eastern Cape and KwaZulu-Natal are home to large numbers of people living with disabilities. Special schools are supposed to assist and educate children with disabilities. But many have left school because of sexual abuse. We spoke to some parents whose children attended two special schools in KwaZulu-Natal, one in Freyheit and the other in Deben North. The parents say their children were sexually assaulted and put through the most harrowing, intense pressure. The pus that was coming out of his buttocks was caused by cracks that were as a result of the pain and a wound was formed. My daughter was 13 years old. The man was old. He caused injury to my daughter. She struggled with incontinence after the rape. A school in Bizana in the Eastern Cape is struggling with the same problem. A young boy with a speech impediment was allegedly assaulted at school by fellow pupils. Later, the boy was allegedly strangled to death on a school bus by classmates. His mother says he wants answers from the provincial education department and the bus driver. I become so angry when I see the bus driver. If I had the strength, I was going to pay revenge on that driver to show him that I'm not happy that he never came to us and tell us what happened to my son. I have begged him several times. It's alleged most rape cases are committed by boys against boys. The alleged rapes endured by girls are perpetrated mainly by their teachers and other male school staff. The Department of Basic Education admits that sexual exploitation of pupils is rife. The department spokesperson Elijah Mklanga explains. All teacher unions now agree with those educators, those officials who work with learners must now be dealt with and be dealt with harshly because we want to protect our children. First, from the sexual offense itself, and second, from secondary trauma, which has been a problem. Most of the people who were accused of offending were 
reinstated due to lack of evidence. A teacher who allegedly impregnated a grade 12 learner at a special school in Bizana has been suspended pending a disciplinary hearing. Children under the age of 18 are considered too young to consent to sexual activities even if the child does not believe it to be rape. Simkita Mangunane, Freiheit in KwaZulu-Natal. Fathers in South Africa will now be able to take up to 10 a day paid paternity leave. South African President Cyril Ramaphosa officially signed the Labour Laws Amendment Bill into law, which means there's been some progress regarding parental leave in the country. But while the new law is certainly a step in the right direction, there is still a long road ahead for gender equality in the country. Essentially, the new act states that any employee who wasn't entitled to maternity leave will now be permitted to take 10 days parental leave, which will be paid out of the Unemployment Insurance Fund. The act also covers adoption leave and commissioning parental leave. More from Advocate of Law for All, Advocate Jackie Nachtechal. Well, it's something that we've been very passionate about since about 2015, getting various petitions to, to Parliament to try and change the way that the current laws are stated to um, enhance gender equality in South Africa. So we've been hammering on about it for the last three years. So it's a positive, a positive step by um, President Ramaphosa, although it's still a very tiny step. Yeah. Now, you are uh, ever uh, concerned about gender inequality for the, the woman in a heterosexual relationship who decides to conceive a child in the traditional way. Why is this the case? Um, I think as the law stands, it still places the majority of the parenting on women, you know, Forcing the woman to take, or only allowing a woman to take four months uh, parental leave, you know, doesn't allow an active participation by the man. It doesn't allow different setups where a woman is a breadwinner. It still reinforces our cultural and societal norms that says, "Mom, you here's your baby. You look after it. Dad, you go off and do." You know, go make money, do whatever you need to do. And this is something we have to change in our society. And unfortunately, our laws are still reinforcing our our belief system. I do want to say I think the law, um, this new amendment act, is a positive step. It does allow for different family setups. It allows for fathers to to participate more. So we are slowly moving towards a new new system it would have been nicer to see more choice for a family you know for me as in my own family to choose Mm. who stays with the baby now would you say that uh, this almost indicates that south africa is moving in a progressive direction um with uh, signing this particular law absolutely without a doubt i think it's a you know changing a society changing culture is a very slow process as frustrating as it might be to many people it's Slowly we change mindsets, slowly paradigms move, and with tiny things of these 10 days, it starts us thinking about the role of parenting. It starts us talking about it more, and in time, you know, the next amendment I, I might see might a bigger options and choices.
And uh, uh, finally, I mean, you know, with something like this, there's always the the naysayers, so to speak. You know, people who will be like, okay, it's great that you've done this, but uh, uh, men should also be able to take up to four to six months, just like uh, uh, the mothers would be able to. So Mm -hmm. how important is it in your view, Advocate Jackie, that uh, a government move towards, uh, you know, having a more equally orientated law? I think it's incredibly important because as long as we are excluding fathers from parenting, and I believe we currently are, we are excluding them from their influence on the future of the future of South Africa. We are saying to them their role is not important, and as a result, they don't participate as much as they could, and the woman gets stuck with the, I don't want to say the burden because parenting is not a burden, but the care of the child, which often leads her to you know, be discriminated against in the workplace, which allows doesn't allow her career to flourish as it could. Swiss chocolate wouldn't be Swiss chocolate without African cocoa. <laughs> you know, it's funny when you think about it that way because you realize just how important Africa is to the global economy. And as long as we are deemed to be inferior by the community out there, nothing's ever going to change. I believe it was one of the uh, ancient Greek philosophers who said that when we teach, we'll learn twice. Hello, Africa. Welcome to 1000 African Voices on Channel Africa. 1000 African Voices every Saturday morning at 9 a.m. with repeats on Sundays between 10 and 11 as well as on Monday morning between 3 and 4 Central African Time. 1000 African Voices with me, Awurengwi C on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance from an African perspective. So now for our economics news with Usani Matebula. Good evening. Thanks, Amanda. South Africa's Public Enterprises Minister, Pravin Godan, says he's confident that the current leadership of South African Airways has a viable plan to turn around the airline. Godan says at the moment uh, the airline is in a tight spot, adding that it will be difficult to attract equity partners to invest in it. He told Parliament's Public Enterprises Committee that in order for the turnaround strategy to succeed, all stakeholders will have to make sacrifices. Everybody will have to make sacrifices in order for the airline to be able to get its cost base right and uh, fly better, if you like, but uh, on a different and more competitive basis than it currently is, so that maybe in two years' time or three years' time, everybody would benefit out of that equation, meaning you still have your job, you'll be earning an income, the airline will be flying more extensively, and different uh, options and opportunities will be exercised as well. And the latest uh, Ipsos research results uh, show that uh, South Africa is the first country in the world to have an illegal cigarette brand as the top seller of tobacco. The study has also found that uh, trade in illegal cigarettes has increased dramatically in the country despite the efforts of SARS to crack down on this illicit business. The tobacco market study was conducted between June and October this year. The Tobacco Institute for Southern Africa's chairperson, Francois van der Meve. 
South Africa is the first country in the world to allow an illicit cigarette brand to become the biggest in the market. We've allowed this as a country. And if this doesn't stop immediately and other industries and other sectors and other criminal activities follow suit, where will this country go? How can the legal industry compete? The legal industry which I represent, paying taxes, you simply cannot compete with companies selling cigarettes at 10 rand a packet. Rio Tinto will sell its 69% stake in a Namibian uranium mine to China National Uranium Corporation for up to 106.5 million US dollars as China seeks to bolster supplies in Rio of Lords less profitable assets. Analysts say China, which is targeting nuclear power as an alternative to fossil fuels and already owns stakes in Namibian uranium production, was an obvious buyer of the shares in the Rosing mine. Rosing is the world's longest running open pit uranium mine operating since 1976 and has produced more uranium than any other mine. And South Africa Special Investigative Unit uh, SIU will run a full probe into South African public broadcaster SABC as well as pay TV multi-choice contract including its uh, legality. The contract ended in July and a new one has been entered into SIU head uh, Endimo Tibi says the investigation will also look at uh, whether anyone benefited from the deal and whether the anti-corruption prevention legislation was contravened. Phase 2 also covers the following matters. The legion's payments of 2.4 million paid to about 53 artists. SABC Heritage Thank You Concert to the value of plus minus 27 million. Rapid Blue X Factor Season 1, irregularities relating to the lease of the SABC offices in Nelspreit, irregular payments of Mr. Mutuening's 1.2 million legal fees, and various allegations at Northwest SABC offices, including the appointments of the Provincial General Manager, the Provincial News Editor, officials doing business with SABC. We will also investigate any possible corruption and abuse of SABC resources. South African chemicals and fertilizer maker Omnia says it will cut about 125 jobs and reduce costs at its struggling chemical producing unit. A slowdown in the manufacturing and mining sectors weighed on Omnia's chemical business, whose products are used in various industries, including engineering, paints and inks, textiles, chemical manufacturing and food and beverages. Omnia says it will complete the restructuring and implement the turnaround strategy in the unit before the end of the financial year. Now, financial indicators, the dollar, 10.34, Botswana Pula, 11.84, Zambin Kwacha, also at uh, 77 pence to the British pound and 88 cents against the euro. Commodities, gold, $1,221, platinum, $841 per fine ounce, Brent crude oil, $60.38 per barrel. That's how it's looking right now.
Good evening, sport fans. So with your latest Channel Africa Sports News at this hour, I'm Neto NETO Chemani. Starting off with cricket news. England have claimed a second position in the ICC men's test team rankings after completing a 3-0 sweep over Sri Lanka in Colombo this afternoon. England had started the series in the third on 106 points, one point behind South Africa. Test team rankings, unlike the ODI and T20 international team rankings, are updated at the end of a series. And following their win, England have moved into second place on 108 points. In the latest table. India lead the field with 116 points. They are followed by England on 108, South Africa 106, Australia 102 and New Zealand 101. With some more mouth-watering test cricket to take place in the season, there could potentially be a change at the top of the table depending on how Australia and India and the South Africa and Pakistan series pan out. On to football news. South African Premiership side Polokwane City head coach Joseph Vukusik is not really concerned about a possible rustiness from his players following two weeks of lack of competition. City welcome Cape Town City to the old Peter Mugaba Stadium in an APSA Premiership match tonight at 19.30 Central African time. Vukusik says rustiness is a problem for most sides. However, his players have been working hard in training and are ready to get back into action tonight. The question is there, but uh, it's the same uh, for, for the opponent. And uh, I go out from our training and uh, it, it was okay. The first week was these first four days after the last game were a little so not stable. Because the player left and uh, they were traveling, there was some public event mm-hmm. and that. So, but the last week was already good, compact, and uh, now the days to the game we finalize. And uh, I am happy how the player perform, and I uh, believe that we're ready. Rise and shine in the citizens lie neck and neck on the log, with the Limpopo side in 7th spot with 18 points after 11 outings, while the visitors are placed 8th with 13 points from 10 encounters. Vukusik is expecting a tough clash tonight. The coach adds that his counterpart, Benny McCarthy, has good players. It's a not easy game. We know that uh, they won last uh, two games, so... They, they played uh, well and uh, what I can see they have uh, good players but uh, I hope and I believe in my team we play home and uh, we have a good team so they have good players but I hope that we have a better team. Banyana Banyana coach Desri Ellis says they will need to capitalize on their strengths when they face Malawi in the all-important Africa Women's Cup of Nations semi-final at the Cape Coast Stadium in Ghana tonight. Ellis was also quick to add that they cannot afford to repeat the poor performance they staged against Zambia. Despite that, the one-all draw secured them a spot in the last four of the tournament. This evening's match determines qualification for the FIFA Women's World Cup that will be staged in France next year. Both Banyana Banyana and Mali have never qualified for the global spectacle. Elise has more.
We should use our strength, obviously, um, you know, our positional play, um, creating openings, creating chances. But most importantly, we have to be clinical in front of goal. You know, against Zambia, we had a few good opportunities, you know, um, to really finish it off and we did not. And uh, we must make sure that when we do get that opportunities that we finish because Mali has shown that if they get an opportunity that they will finish and we have to be really, really concentrated at the back. It's almost a, a Nigeria-like performance that we go, have to go out and, and display to get the result because that's what it's all about. And finally in Gulf News, Cameron Smith is confident he can continue his solid run of form as he prepares to defend his Australian PGA Championship crown in front of family and friends this week. The world number 33 who arrived on the Gold Coast following a tight second finish at half of Team Australia at the Melbourne World Cup of Golf is excited to be back at home and the familiar surroundings of RACV Royal Pines. Smith overcame Jordan Zunik in a playoff after a dramatic final round to claim the Kirkwood Cup, the oldest trophy in Australian professional golf. Thank you for choosing Channel Africa. Stay tuned. More sports news later on. This is Africa Digest. It's four minutes before 6 p.m. Central African time. Recapping our top stories on Africa Digest. Togo's opposition coalition threatens to boycott the December 20 parliamentary elections. South Africa is losing millions of dollars to illegal cigarettes and 75% of all people living with HIV know their status, according to a new report by UNAIDS. That wraps up Africa Digest this hour from myself, Amanda Machaga, producer Ntlantla Amatlangu, technical producer Wiseman Mangnedle and the rest of the Africa Digest team. Thank you for listening. Remember, I would like to hear from you. You can send us your comments to info at channelafrica.co.za that's our email address or send a whatsapp message to plus two seven seven six three double zero double three two seven or tweet us our twitter handle is at channel africa the number one taking us to the top of the hour is a song titled harare by bongo muffin Da kuyenda kuarare Da kuka 